Jesus, a real person who also claimed to be God, died on a Roman cross some 2,000 years ago for a purpose, not an accident, for you and for me. A couple of weeks ago, when the family and I were on our way back to Toowoomba, we were driving past a cemetery, a very large cemetery in Brisbane, when our seven-year-old son, Theodore, spots a vast sea of crosses in that cemetery and pipes up from the back and asks the question, is this where Jesus died? Now, that's a totally reasonable question, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit weird. If this is not where Jesus was crucified, and there weren't any crucifixions happening in downtown Brisbane today, why would there be all of these crosses? What purpose do they serve? In fact, while we're asking the question here this morning, uh, why would we have a cross here up on the wall? Or why would some people wear a cross around their neck? Or why would there be a cross on toasted fruit buns? And perhaps even more strangely, why would we call today Good Friday good? I mean, frankly, on the surface, it doesn't really look very good. In fact, it kind of looks like the opposite of good. The simple answer is, Jesus' crucifixion is just not an event neatly parked in the corner of history, but it was the event, along with the resurrection, which changed the course of history. Simple answer, because Jesus died for you. Four words, four words that explain why Good Friday is good. Jesus died for you, which of course also includes me. Four words that I really long and want you to take away today and let them flood your heart. But before you go and take them away, let's consider them one by one. So first, Jesus was a real person who, and here's the twist, also claimed to be God. We can learn about Jesus' life through the Gospels, that is the early accounts of his life. We can learn about Jesus from the New Testament letters. We can learn about Jesus also from other Jewish and Greco-Roman sources. No serious historian in the world doubts that Jesus was a real person who existed. Located in a real time, so some 2,000 years ago, located in a real place, what we would know today as modern-day Israel, Lebanon, Palestine, and actually Egypt as well. And Jesus wasn't just pretending to be human but really was human. We witness that physically, relationally, emotionally, and rationally. 
physically. Jesus was born, lived, walked, spoke, hungered, cried, ate, bled, and died. Relationally, Jesus wasn't a recluse. He prayed, he spoke to his father, he had friends, he had followers, he even had enemies. Emotionally, Jesus was sad, grieved, lamented, angered, felt compassion and knew joy. Rationally, Jesus taught, answered questions, memorized scripture, pursued God's will, resisted temptation. He made choices. Jesus was fully human, physically, relationally, emotionally, rationally. He knew what it was to be human because he was. But extraordinarily, and this should really mess with our minds, he also claimed to be God. For a long time, people had waited for God to send a rescuing king. But in a uh, more than worthy Netflix twist, the king would also be God himself. That's what Jesus claimed. And this wasn't just something that people made up about Jesus later on. The idea that this is a, a modern invention is actually a modern myth. For we just heard now in the Gospel of Luke that even Jesus' most significant sceptics and tormentors knew that these were the very claims that Jesus had been making about himself. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? The crowd sneers, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mock, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The sign reads, this is the king of the Jews. The criminal insults, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. See, it makes no sense to simply dismiss Jesus as just some sort of teacher, healer, prophet, or revolutionary. The identity of Jesus is front and centre. No one is mistaken about the claims that are on the line here. But instead of letting this truth sink into their hearts and their minds, they expel the possibility by hurling the truth from their lips as insults. It's as if so repulsed and so perplexed by the possibility that Jesus is both human and God, they sooner, sooner taunt him and kill him than even entertain, let alone accept his claims. They didn't just reject the claims, but sought to eradicate the one who claimed them. If you're joining with us today and the claims of Jesus just seem like utter nonsense to you, I would so love to invite you to not just reject or dismiss them immediately as you hear them. Don't just taunt, mock, insult or ignore. But do what a good, rational person would do. Weigh up the claims. 
Maybe you've never had the opportunity to do that before. Look, I know it sounds crazy. But it's only when you take the claims of Jesus, that he is the long-awaited rescuer, both fully human and fully God, that you'll ever begin to make sense of his death. Jesus died on the cross. I know there's all sorts of bizarre theories that maybe Jesus didn't really die, that somehow he was sort of pretending. But if you just let me take a bit of a shortcut here this morning, the too-long-didn't-read-or-research version is that those theories really don't stack up, okay? I mean, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. To us, in our time, place and world, the cross is almost a bit of a sanitised symbol. We see it alongside golden arches perched on the top of buildings and can think nothing more. But in the ancient world, it would strike terror into people's hearts. It was the cruelest death. As one commentator, Martin Gogol, puts it, stripped of his clothing, unable even to brush away the flies that fell upon his wounded flesh, already lacerated by the preliminary scouring, exposed to the insults and curses of the people who can always find some sickening pleasure in the sight of the tortures of others, a feeling which is increased, not diminished, by the sight of pain. The cross represented miserable humanity reduced to the last degree of impotence, suffering and degradation. The penalty of crucifixion combined all that the most ardent tormentor could desire. Torture, the pillory, degradation and certain death distilled slowly drop by drop. You can see why that for so many people, Pilate, the soldiers, the crowd, one of the criminals, that Jesus going to the cross and his apparent inability to do anything about that predicament seems to be the very proof that Jesus isn't the Messiah nor God. That the cross and king are incompatible. Hence, we hear those clauses. If he is God's Messiah, let him save himself. If you are the king, save yourself. If you are the Messiah, save yourself. Can you see how they're thinking? If he cannot save himself, he must not be who he says he is. They, of course, I don't think, really expect Jesus to be proven right, more that he'd realise that he's wrong. In a culture in which victors were strong and successful, a Messiah with a cross was a joke. See, the cross wasn't just a horrific instrument of torture, but a scandalous symbol of shame. The purpose of a crucifixion was not only to kill, but to dehumanise. As Tom Holland puts it, that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god, could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene and grotesque. They think if he can't save himself, he's devoid of power. He's been living a lie. They think that the cross is incompatible with Jesus or anyone being the King of Kings. They look at the cross and they say, no thanks, what a failure, what a joke. 
but that's because they do not understand what he is doing there. See, Jesus died for a purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't simply the suppression of a self-pronounced king by threatened ruling power. It wasn't simply subversion of a radical prophet by annoyed religious leaders. There was a divine purpose to Jesus' death. In fact, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection three times. It was a pretty weird thing to say. His disciples even rejected him saying it at times, and they couldn't fathom it when it happened at first. But Jesus' death was both a sacrifice and a victory. We heard in Luke chapter 23, as Jesus was on the cross and reaching the end, we heard from verse 43, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The curtain in the temple separated the holy of holies, the place of God's presence, from the people. It was a reminder that people couldn't just simply enter into God's presence because our sin causes a barrier between us and God. But once a year, a high priest would enter and make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. It was a messy reminder that our sin was costly. It damaged life. It fractured our relationship with God. It hurt the world. And in order for there to be justice, it couldn't just be swept under the carpet, but it would cost something to set us right. The problem with these annual sacrifices is that it wasn't a permanent solution. It wasn't a perfect sacrifice. It only pointed to the ultimate need for forgiveness to be fulfilled of a relationship that needed to be restored. That's what we're being shown here. That's why Jesus can then commend himself into his Father's hands. Jesus' death was the perfect and sufficient sacrifice that shatters the barrier between us and God, that tears open a way for us to be reconciled to God. See, God doesn't just ignore the injustice of sin and evil. God doesn't just cancel those who do it, which would be all of us. God doesn't simply slap us on the face, but he takes the punishment and violence on himself that we might be reconciled to him forever. Jesus chose not to get off the cross to save himself because he was there in order to save everyone else. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And that's precisely what he was doing. It was both sacrifice and a victory. So we see in verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. It's really important to note, so centurions are really, uh, were really hardened soldiers. So this one had likely seen hundreds of crucifixions, witnessed hundreds of crucifixions before. So imagine being there that day, just another crucifixion, 
having witnessed all that had taken place, the brutality, the shame, the grief, the taunts, Jesus' death. You know, what would be your key reflection? What would be your key takeaway from that situation? I think it's really hard to imagine, having witnessed Jesus' brutal death, that the place where the centurion lands, having observed and witnessed and experienced all of this, both recognising Jesus as righteous, that is acceptable to God, and praising God. At first glance, it doesn't look like there's much to give thanks for at all. That's precisely what he did. And of course, that's the paradox of Good Friday. It's because Jesus was despised and rejected that it means that we can be received and welcomed. Praise God. See, this event is personal. Jesus died for you and for me. Let's get back to verse 39. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine uh, witnessing this conversation? So these two people hanging side by side on crosses and Jesus says in that moment, today you will join me in paradise. If you've ever been speaking to someone and trying to console someone who is going through something really hard, has something devastating or have something hard and less significant than that. So often our natural instinct, certainly my sense of compulsion, is that I want to say, it'll be okay. I want to say that even when I know that that's not true. When you see what Jesus says here, today you will join me, be with me in paradise, it's easy to think, is this just the worst possible example of an empty promise that things will be okay? How will things be okay? In fact, how will things be better than okay? The word for paradise conjures up, it refers to the image of a place where God dwells with his people in an uninhibited way. You see, because Jesus' death wasn't a failure. Jesus' death wasn't the end. Jesus' death was a victory. Jesus' death is an invitation. It was the defeat of sin and the death of death for all who look to him to be saved. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, as people encounter Jesus, such an enormous variety and diversity of people encounter Jesus, Luke goes to great extent, to great length, to show us how people respond. That's really what Luke wants us to see, that our response matters. Some mock him because they conclude that Jesus is deluded and weak. Some reject him, defiantly asserting their own pride and position. Some ignore him, thinking it's just another crucifixion. But some accept him because they recognise their need and the one who has fulfilled it. 
Did you note the contrast between the two criminals? It's hard uh, to miss. One distanced himself from Jesus. The other, even as he hangs on a cross, draws close. He acknowledges his wrongdoing. He knows that he is guilty. He turns to Jesus, who he knows is innocent. And he simply asks Jesus to remember him. Because that thief knew that there was nothing in his power to save himself. Do you know, when he asked that question, note the immediacy and the certainty of Jesus' offer. It's immediate and certain. There's no conditions. There's no credits required. One turns away. One turns toward. Will you turn away? Or you turn toward Jesus? When you turn toward Jesus, it's so freeing. It is not a question if you're good enough or if you've done enough. But it's all about who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus doesn't say, if you want to be saved, well, you've got to be exactly like me. You need to try harder. You need to live the perfect moral life. You need to rack up enough credits. And then, and only then, come to me and we'll see how you go. The thieves certainly didn't have time for that, did they? There were hours, at most, from death. And of course, if that was the case, it would spell disaster for us all. Salvation would be out of reach for all. Now, Jesus says, if you want to be saved, you need to put your trust in me. I died for you. For it's only when you're willing to acknowledge your weakness and trust in my strength, love and mercy that you will find forgiveness and salvation that I've won for you on the cross and inviting you to take hold of today.